The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. I would like to invite uh, the team that is going to India this week to come forward, as well as board and staff members, some of you other leaders that would like to come to pray over the team and commission them this morning. Missions is all about spreading the fame and the name of Jesus Christ around the world. We have been given the the responsibility, the calling, the privilege of discipling the nations. And as we do this discipling of the nations, we know that it's a double-edged sword that in the process, God is also discipling us. And so those of the, the, the team that stand before us today understand, they've been studying and praying and preparing, and they understand that that is as much as they are going to India in West Bengal to leave behind a blessing to minister His Word, to minister to the poor, to serve and love in Jesus' name, they know that this has been partly an investment in their own lives as they grow and mature, as they leave comfort zones, as they sacrifice and whatever else is required of them. And, and it's all about them growing in grace and faith as well. And so as a church family, we want to stand with them and we want to pray for them. We want to commission them. If you're able to be at the church or at the airport, I mean, on Wednesday at 1 o'clock, you'd be, you'd be welcome to come and join our prayer circle and just commission them there as well before they leave. Uh, if you're not able to go, that's fine, but uh, we ask you to think of them on Wednesday as they travel. Also, if you're interested in following them day at a time, in the information center in the church lobby, there are uh, a little page that describes the, their absolute two-week itinerary. You can follow them almost by the hour, and of course, it all changes once you get there, but we're going to pray on that <laughs> basis, you know. <laughs> well, I wasn't supposed to tell them that. No, was, they all know, <laughs> but uh, by the grace of God, we're going to ask that He use them and use this whole experience for them. So I'm going to ask if some of you in leadership could, could pray over the group, and I will conclude after a few of you have led. Let's pray together. Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we have people in our midst who are willing to put themselves forth under your service. But Father, I ask specifically for them that you would continue to grow them, that you would build their faith, that you would build their abilities and their service unto you. You would accept the praise of their volunteerism. And you would build them up to bring them back here so that we would be also blessed through the things that they have learned and the way that they have served. We are so fortunate that you continue to work on and in and through us, Father, towards the fulfillment of your work and your will throughout the world. Please continue to guide us forward and to bless this team richly for their willingness and their service. For I ask this in Jesus' name. Father, we're so thankful for each one of these people who have been willing to step outside their comfort zone to follow your leading to go to India. Mm -hmm. Lord, I pray specifically for safety and health for each one of them as they travel, as they go through India, as they meet different people, as they minister, and as they serve. And I pray that you would bless them as they bless others. In Jesus' name. Mm. Father God, we thank you so much for the church that you've established in India. We thank you for the work that you're doing there and for the privilege that we have to send these people to join you in that. 
And I just ask that you would um, use the words that you've laid on their hearts, Father. Mm. I thank you for the time that they've spent in your word and the changes that you've um, already done in their lives. And I pray that you will just use that to impact your church and to grow your kingdom. And we give them to you and we ask for your hand of protection on them. And we also ask that you bless them and bless our brothers and sisters in India through them on our behalf. bring this group of individuals before you who've been on a journey for a while now preparing to go to India and God we pray as as they leave um, the safety of their homes the safety of this country that you'll be watching over them that when they enter this land where there are thousands of gods and thousands of false gods that are worshipped everywhere that you would protect them and that you would keep them safe and that they would in fact be a catalyst for change in the lives of those who don't know you that through them, Lord, the church yeah. in India would be strengthened. Yeah. And God, I pray most of all that they will be transformed in their interactions that you've already prepared for them. Amen. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit, who's already gone ahead of them, will be watching over them, over all of their conversations, over all of their travels, and that you will be ultimately glorified in all of this. In Jesus' name. We worship you, Lord God, and we, we give to you this team. We, we send them off, Lord, with your blessing. We believe that as they land in India, they, they come and that, Lord, you're going to anoint their sermons and their messages, their teaching, their service, their love, their work, Lord, their friendships. We believe you're going to anoint that. We ask you to anoint them. We ask you, Lord, to let the word be made flesh and dwell among those in West Bengal as they gather there, Lord, that your church would be strengthened, that you would do the iron sharpening iron, that the global discipleship thing that you're so good at. And Father, that uh, we would gather in a few weeks back here with them and that we would hear reports of the good things that you've done both overseas in India as well as in the hearts of these that are being sent. Help us to be faithful in prayer. We just commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, team. Thank you, leaders. Well, the couple of weeks that are coming are weeks of preparation, and just before I, I jump into the message, I do want to encourage you, would you be prayerful on behalf of the board and staff, on behalf of our church family? Uh, we have been pursuing the Lord in these days, and we feel as though God is directing us. I've been sharing with many people that I believe one of the best definitions that I've heard about faith is stepping into the light, God's light, not stepping into the darkness, but stepping into the light. And each week, it seems like God is giving us more light on the path for the next step of faith. Even this morning, as we heard the number announced of how much it pledged already for this capital project, we, we give praise to God. It's more light on the path. And so would you prepare your mind in thinking it through and your heart in resolving whatever issues are there so that when we gather on the November 20th, that you're ready to, to make your vote on, on whatever you're going to lead and vote on. And um, so may God bless us together. Next week, as Dave said, we'll, the, the motion will be clear and it'll be sent out as well so that you'll know exactly what uh, we're stepping into as God leads us in his light. Amen. We're at a critical moment in our study of 1 Kings, of the life of Solomon. And uh, as we enter into today, we're, we're realizing that the last few chapters of Solomon's life in 1 Kings chapters 9 to 11, that the author of 1 Kings is trying to give an account of, to the reader, us, 
of how this mighty man has fallen. That's really what the last few chapters of this is all about. It appears that he has had 40 years of reigning as king, and now as he is entering in the golden final years, we, we see the narrative in Scripture reveal that this man who, whom God has gifted with incredible wisdom and wealth has squandered it and is therefore responsible before God with what he has done. And we as readers of Scripture, thousands of years later, must ask, why did this happen to such a blessed man? And how could it have happened? And as we think about that on this particular Sunday when we are celebrating God's provision and, and how He has led us, we have to ask, what are the lessons that we are meant to learn from Solomon in how we steward the wisdom that God gives us and the wealth that God gives us? That's the lesson. There's a direct correlation here. God has led us to study Solomon, and here on this day, he has led us to this passage, and we have to ask, how is it that we're meant to steward God's wisdom and God's wealth that he has given to us? And so if you have your Bible, would you turn in the Bible to 1 Kings chapter 10? And we're not going to take the time to read an extensive passage, but I just want to read a couple of verses found in 1 Kings chapter 10, and we read in verse 23 these words, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole, the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes and weapons and spices and horses and mules. Amen. Solomon was a very, very wealthy man. The scriptures give evidence to this, and his whole life is a paradox. It is a confusing, confusing story. How is it that a man so wise, so wealthy, so blessed, so favored by God could end up squandering and making so many deliberately foolish choices over a lifetime? And as we study, we have to come to three points I, I've shared in the insert in your bulletin, and it has to do with how little Solomon allowed his faith and his religious experience to influence his entire life. That's the question that is before us this morning. How is it that he could allow his faith and his religious experience to influence his entire life so very little? Let's take a look at the first point, and that is talking about the depth and the duty of the religious experience of Solomon. Now, we have many examples of this, but I'm just going to point out a couple of things. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 25, talks about the various sacrifices that Solomon made in the temple. And it says at the end of the verse that he did so and fulfilled the temple obligations. The word obligations is the word I want you to hear. In 2 Chronicles chapter 8, which is a parallel passage, Another author describing the same events of Solomon's life, he says this in describing what Solomon did at the temple. He said, he fulfilled the obligations according to each day's requirements. Okay? We, we get these words popping up several times, obligations, duties, requirements. Now, when we think about it, we should say, well, isn't it good that he was obeying God? He was meeting the requirements of the temple. Well, yes, that could be a good thing, unless... 
His heart was the kind of heart that said, well, what is the absolute obligation? What's the bare minimum that I can put up with and still be okay with God? That's the key are we trying to discern in the Scripture. And that's the essence of what I feel Scripture shows about Solomon. We have another verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 11, where when, when Solomon is moving, here's, here's a dilemma, I'm going to talk about this next week, when Solomon is moving one of his wives to Jerusalem, she can't live in the temple of David, his father, where he lives. He builds her her own palace. And why is that? Because in verse 11 it says, because the places of the, the ark of the Lord has been are holy. Oh, interesting. So here is Solomon's definition of holy. What does it show? In his mind, it was okay to have many wives, but it was okay to have those wives worshiping foreign gods as long as they didn't step foot in one of the holy places of Israel. What, this is hypocrisy. We see, it, we see through it so clearly from our vantage point. He had developed this compartmentalization that is so telling, it's so indicting upon Solomon. He has cr conveniently created a false dichotomy between material and physical things and spiritual things. And this attitude of duplicity had led him down the wrong path. The scriptures reveal the depth and the duty behind Solomon's religious experience, that the depth was shallow and the duty was the motivation, not love for God. Anything that we do out of duty to fulfill obligations to create the bare minimum idea really reveals our heart's condition. There are thousands of people in Canada who in their mind think, what is the, what is the bare minimum? What's my duty? What does mama want? What does the church expect? etc. That's, that's how they approach it. And of course, it's an indication of how shallow their depth of faith is and how duty has been motivating them. Many of you probably have read the books of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, executed on April the 9th, 1945, by the Gestapo at a concentration camp in Flossenburg, Germany, just a few days before the Allied forces liberated that camp. Years before the war, before 1939, he was disturbed at the hypocrisy of the German church. He was vexed over his brothers and sisters' inability to see the, the hypocrisy that existed in their lives. And before the war, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he uses a few phrases that were new at the time one of them is called cheap grace, and one of them is called costly grace. He admits in the book that there is no such thing as cheap grace, really, because it cost Jesus Christ, God's Son, His own life in order to give us sinners grace. But he goes on to talk about the fact that there is a huge war about to take place. And in Germany, he was not talking about World War II at the time. He said the huge war is an ideological war. And he said that on the one side are lined up all the forces of what would be called uncorrupted biblical Christianity. And on the other side are lined up the religious establishment and all who were content to be churchmanship in, in its ideals, 
but have nothing to do with heart religion that reflected in life living, to the point where SS officers could even be named as church leaders, though their faith was far from God. He writes this in, in uh, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, cheap grace is the enemy of the church. It is the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. He says, grace alone does everything, they say, so everything can remain as it was. I don't have to change. It's preaching forgiveness without repentance. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. Therefore, since it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing without ever having to change. You see, grace always calls for a faith response and faith without works is dead. So the question I'm asking you this morning is if Dietrich Bonhoeffer would have had an audience with King Solomon one day and sat in his courts among all the riches that he had and all the servants he had around him, what is the questions that Dietrich Bonhoeffer would have asked King Solomon? What is it that he would have pointed out about the way that King Solomon was appropriating the grace of God, incredibly blessed man, and how would he instruct him? I think it would sound something like this. God did not call you to be the king of Israel just so you could say that you believe the law of Moses and the prophets, but not live them out. He did not call you to be king so that you could identify certain religious observations and requirements to fulfill and others to ignore. He did not call you to be king so that you could build an outward temple, but leave the temple of your heart abandoned and empty or duplicit at least. He called you to be king so that you could maintain true justice and righteousness on this earth and for my kingdom. He called you to be king so that you could in, invite the nations to Jerusalem and they could see what the living God is all about. And they would hear more about the name and the fame of the living God than the name and the fame of King Solomon. I don't think Dietrich Bonhoeffer would mix words. Let's move to our second point, which talks about the duplicity and the distraction of Solomon's religious experience. Way back in Deuteronomy 17, Moses writes these words, when you enter the land that God is going to give you, and you take possession of it and settle yourselves, and then you say, let us set a king over us like the other nations have around us. He says, be sure you appoint a king that the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you. And the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. And don't go back to Egypt. You're never to go back that way again. And he must not take for himself many wives, or his heart will be led astray, and he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. <laughs> it seems like that portion of Scripture wasn't in Solomon's Bible at the time. Clearly, Solomon had forgotten this. He had amassed, you can read it, we don't have time, but chapters 9 and 10 of 1 Kings, you can read it. He had amassed horses from all over the world, best horses going. That's like our cars, right? He had amassed wealth and gold. We talk today in terms of ounces of gold. Nuh-uh. Solomon talked about pounds of gold. 
The average shield that the Israelite soldier had had seven and a half pounds of gold in it. The smaller shields had three and a half. He, we talk about silver as a precious metal today, but you know what? It says in the scriptures twice in these verses that Solomon made silver as common as anything in Israel. We would say like Tupperware today. <laughs> I mean, this, this opulence, this wealth was unheard of. All the kings, all the queens of the world would go. We read about it in chapter 10. Queen of Sheba arrives in, in, in the land of Solomon and He's, she's amazed. We read about it in verses 4 and 5. She's impressed with his wisdom, his palace, his food on his table, the servants around the table, the officials, their clothing, the cupbearers, the wine tasters at the end of it all. And she says, and the burnt offerings made at the temple. Interesting. And the burnt offerings made at the temple. Nothing about God, but I wonder if she was just impressed that how could you afford to sacrifice so many animals on a daily basis? So she's impressed. She's impressed. Verse 9, she says at the end of it, Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Here is an unbeliever telling Solomon more about his job description than he figured out. We get the feeling that she knew more. So Solomon was duplicit. He had allowed riches to enter his heart he had allowed it to happen. In today's language, we would say Solomon was caught in the grip of materialism. And like any of us who get snagged in the trap of materialism, it was not the stuff around him that was the problem. The biggest problem was the stuff in his heart, you see. It's the same with us. It's not the stuff in your house that's the problem. It's how your heart is toward the stuff in your house. Materialism is a form of heart disease. He had set his heart on stuff, lots of stuff, more stuff, expensive stuff. And so he had fallen. Now I want to say this. We must remember that Solomon, with all of his wealth, unheard of, did not have a tenth of the luxuries and pleasures you and I enjoy in this generation, okay? Let's not forget that. With all of his wealth, he didn't have technology and, and, and the things that we enjoy. We are rich. We are comfortable people. Covetousness had gripped his heart, and covetousness of heart is not about how much stuff we have, but how much that stuff has us, right? Does it have us? Who serves who here is the question. Someone has said that materialism is an equal opportunity sin. It takes the rich and the poor alike. I have been in many parts of this world. I have seen rich and poor alike fall prey to the, the sin of covetousness. Those of you that go to India will see probably demonstrations of opulent wealth as well as incredible poverty. I read a story about something that occurred many years ago at an assembly plant in Panama in Central America. A major American company was having trouble keeping their employees working in the plant because the workers were from an agrarian barter economy, but they paid them in cash. And the average worker at the end of one week's work had more cash than he ever need of and could do anything with, and so they would quit work for a few days. 
And this company had no idea how to resolve this problem, this inconsistency in employees showing up for work. So finally, the company executives got together, and they decided they they gave every employee a Sears catalog. And they found that no one quit work anymore. Now they wanted all the things that they didn't even know existed two weeks before. What it had created is simply it had had fallen prey to the human heart, the, the covetousness, the idolatry, the things that want more. What's that all about? A guy by the name of Greg Easterbrook wrote a book called The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Get Worse or Feel Worse. He says, the incredible rise in living standards for the majority of Americans and Western Europeans has made them more affluent, more healthy, more comfortable, more free and sovereign over bigger piles of stuff, but it has not made them any happier. And so we we fall prey. Whether you're a poor person or a rich person in some part of the world, whether whether you want goats or golf clubs, it doesn't matter. It's what your heart is doing with these things. And the lies that these things teach us, the lies. We believe the lies. We believe that they'll meet our needs, satisfy our longings, fulfill our lives, make us happier. And Jesus says that life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. That you brought nothing into this world, and one day you're going to leave with nothing. That's what Jesus said. So store up treasure in heaven. An author by the name of Dave Harvey talks about materialism and consumerism as chains that bind in these lies that they were convinced of. And he says, he says four things. You can write these four words down says four things of what the lies are all about. Number one lie, my stuff makes me happy. That's a lie. My stuff makes me happy. Take an inventory of how much happiness you get from what you buy or why you buy it. Ask yourself how long it lasts. Ask yourself how much you depend on stuff for pleasure. Second word, My stuff makes me important. Do some introspection on that front as well. How much self-esteem do you gather from the things that you own or the money you have? The car you drive, the house you live in, the job you've got, the status you have. How does stuff make you important? I think we all do it, man. I, I think we all do it. We do a quiet comparison. I had it myself happen to me the other day about a week or two ago. I drove, I drove up to, beside someone at a stoplight, and they were beside me. And, my, and my just, I just looked at their car, and I thought, oh, you poor, you poor beggar. I just thought, what a, what a jalopy, you know? And then I had a self-awareness moment, and I realized he's looking back at me in my 98 Ford Ranger thinking the same thing probably. But I had that moment of quiet comparison, like, like you know, there's, a, there's this one-upmanship, there's this we-they, there's this, well, how much does our stuff make us think that we're more important? It's ridiculous. The third word, how much my stuff, the lie is my stuff makes me secure. How much shopping is done because of some kind of security pursuit 
Randy Alcorn wrote a book, and he says in this book, he said in his experience that 95% of believers who face the test of persecution pass it. 95%. And he says 95% of those believers who face the test of prosperity fail it. See, prosperity, he's saying, is a more insidious, harder to overcome enemy than, than persecution. How do we do? We look into it for for security. And then lastly, the fourth word is, my stuff makes me rich. My stuff makes me rich. What a a foolish thought, eh? Do you know that in this world, 10% of adults in this world, just adults, they have in their hands 85% of the world's wealth. 10%. I need to tell you, you're part of the 10%. You're part of the group that has 85% of the world's wealth, and we have said to the other 90%, you try to get by on that 15% that you got. If we were to track the consumerism of North America and multiply it so it went out towards the whole population of the 7 billion or whatever it is on earth right now, they have, I've read that estimates say that by the year 2050, this planet would be awful. It, we'd, we'd be wrecked. We cannot, the world could not consume the way that we consume. We are living high on the hog somehow at the expense of somebody else. We are on that 10%. I'm not saying this to beat us up. I'm not saying this that... I'm saying this because we have to understand Don't let these things control your life. Don't let wealth. Learn from Solomon. What is it that we're to learn? Well, in the 1956 movie of Moby Dick, I love the the picture. It's Captain Ahab. He's this sailor. He's out looking for this big white whale. And the last scene of the movie shows him with his harpoon, and he slams that into the side of this great sea beast. And then he doesn't realize that the rope is wrapped around his leg. And so as this big whale dives, Captain Ahab gets flown out of the the ship and he goes underwater. And the last scene of the movie is this picture of this whale with Captain Ahab strung around, roped to the side of the whale, and it's just about to dive into oblivion. And Captain Ahab goes to his death with the obsession of his life. There's a picture of Solomon. There's Solomon. He's he's lashed himself to his own demise by his own doing because of his heart's toys and his idolatry and his sins over 40 years of making bad decisions. What do we learn from Solomon? As I conclude, I want to just say this. The distinguishing element of our religious experience, the distinguishing element of our faith has to be that unlike Solomon, who lived for his own name and his own fame, we need to live for the name and the fame of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. And nothing that we we have on this earth will ever count. One day... That the place that we've lived and the the space we've taken up is going to be gone. And it says in Psalm 103, and its place remembers it no more. 
But that which is done for Jesus Christ in eternity, for his fame and for his name, that's going to make eternal difference in somebody's life. So that's the lesson I believe that Solomon teaches us. We're not done yet. We're going to learn more lessons from Solomon. But may God, may God receive the glory he deserves. Would you, would you stand with me and let us conclude with prayer? And um, let us give glory to God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day. We've had so much happening this morning in our service. We praise you, Lord, for this campaign. And we confess that sometimes we get more excited about the material blessings that you give instead of the spiritual ones. But we, we thank you for them all, God. We, we acknowledge that there's nothing that we have that we've not been given we thank you, God, for the India team, and we, we're so grateful to be part of what you're doing on planet Earth, oh God. We know you're using that for our, glory, our, our growth as well. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of gathering around your table this morning. We remember the foundation of our unity in Christ is in you, Jesus. And we thank you for your word and Solomon's life. We've been reminded today that over a long period of time, Solomon slowly, slowly made bad decisions that resulted in a destiny. Father, would you help us to be wise, truly wise? And would you help us, O oh God, to make decisions that matter for eternity? And Lord, one by one, would you just come alongside of us and in our bank accounts and lifestyles, in our possessions and money and everything about that, would you just help us to invite you in so that we'll live for your glory, your fame, and your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.